You're listening to the Talking Rheumatology Spotlight podcast, brought to you by the British Society for Rheumatology. Welcome to another episode of Talking Rheumatology. I'm Sarah Gallagher, Project Manager for the National Early Inflammatory Arthritis Audit, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr Joe Leddingham and Dr Liz Price. Would you both like to introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your involvement in the audit? So uh, I'm Jo Leddingham. I am a rheumatologist in Portsmouth. I am your current president of the BSR and in my previous years I was your clinical director for the National Early Inflammatory Arthritis Audit, actually involved in in, um, getting the audit funded in the first instance, the original application for funding through HQIP and uh, subsequent iterations leading to its current format. And hi everyone, I'm Liz Price, I'm consultant rheumatologist at the Great Western Hospital, which is based in Swindon. Um, as well as doing general rheumatology, I've got a special interest in Sherman syndrome. I took over as clinical lead of the of NIA in May this year. What are the most important messages from the Year 5 report that you think listeners should know and be sharing with colleagues? I think there's quite a lot of important stuff in that audit. And um, To start with at the very beginning, um, I think we've shown that GPs are getting better at referring patients in quicker. And the, the target, as you know, is three days from presentation to the GP to referral. And we're actually achieving that now in more than half the patients coming in through the rheumatology departments, which is really encouraging. And that's improved over the five year cycle. Where we're struggling, really, is in capacity to see these patients within three weeks. Um, when we started the audit, that was our aim. Um, And although there was an initial improvement, we have really struggled to recover post-COVID. And post-pandemic, those those weights have, if anything, gone up a little bit. However, the one message that has really come across, and I think is the key thing um, from the audit, is that treating patients early, that is starting them on effective medication within six weeks of presentation, improves the outcome at 12 months. That's our key um, measure, I think, moving forward. And it's the one that actually has improved. And we know now that over half of our patients do start treatment um, within that six-week window, which is really encouraging. Responses to treatment are pretty good. At least a third of patients have a good or a very good response to treatment. Um, And we are getting better at patient-reported outcomes. One thing that I really want to emphasise, because I've been doing lots of calls to lots of departments, is that if you put in the patient's email address, BSR will collect the patient-reported outcomes for you. So if you take one message home from this podcast today, please remember that. Great, thank you so much. Joe. as President of the British Society for Rheumatology, what impact does the Year 5 report have the potential to make on the field of rheumatology in the UK? So I, th- this report is different to previous formats. It's, I'm going to say, shorter and hopefully punchier, gets key messages out in uh, a very clear way. And I, I think this really does help bring rheumatology services to the attention of management commissioners, policymakers. I think it should help improve people's understanding of what we can do within rheumatology and the impact we can have when we're adequately staffed and when services are functioning well. Unfortunately, we know that many services are struggling to function well now um, currently, and this is linked with with aftermath of the COVID pandemic and workforce pressures uh, and other aspects. But I, I think Ultimately, this is helping to 
potentially influence resources uh, allocated to rheumatology services. And obviously, we're ultimately aiming to improve the quality of care that's provided to our patients and to improve patient outcomes. So sort of more widely, I think those are the sort of key things. At the departmental level, really, we've got now data that people can use, and we've got data going back many years now to help identify quality improvement priorities for each individual department. And we're really looking for departments to to try and utilise that data. And they can use ongoing data capture to assess the impact of any quality improvement activity that they they take on. And I think the other sort of key message here linked with what Liz was just saying about patient reported outcome data is that we this is a means for capturing data or, on people um, presenting with new diagnoses. And this can feed into development of individual care plans, but also help identify service delivery priorities, again, within individual um, departments, and maybe gaps in the support that are available to patients. So those are the sort of probably the key things I can see in potential for impact on. Perfect. Thank you so much. Liz, one of the recommendations is to ensure prompt access to specialist care for early inflammatory arthritis. Can you discuss the importance of early intervention and the most significant challenges in achieving this? So for some time now, we've known that early treatment improves outcomes. Um, Early treatment prevents disability and keeps people in the workplace. And all of that is really important. Uh, And continuing to work and remaining economically active um, is important to patients' well-being Uh, and the economy as a whole. So that's our ultimate aim, is to keep people working and keep people well. The best way to do that is to start effective treatment early in the disease process. So the longer you delay, the worse the outcomes. The faster you treat, the better the outcomes. And to facilitate that, we've got to see the patients, and they have to be seen by somebody who can make the diagnosis. So I'm a great advocate for consultants doing consultant-level triage, looking at the GP referrals to decide who should be seen in the early inflammatory arthritis clinics, and then being seen by a senior decision-maker, so a consultant or a senior registrar, early on in the course of their disease to start them on treatment without any undue delays. To promote the NEA recommendations at a national level, BSR, healthcare organisations and patient charities need to work together. Jo, what collaborations have happened already and what needs to happen to embed these recommendations? So I I think there's always work that we can continue to be doing here. Um, I am now the chair of the senior governance group for for the, the audit And we have representation on our senior governance group from patient organisations from NRAS, uh, NAS versus arthritis. We also have representation from GERFT and therefore, and also NHS England Um, and NHS Wales. We we need to remember that this audit is covering England and Wales. so we have input uh, at regular meetings, but we also need to sort of work very closely with all of these organisations to, to sort of move things forward and, and try and support service delivery into the longer term. Um, we're working on links with the Care Quality Commission in England and Healthcare Inspectress Wales in Wales. Um, I think Increasingly, we're trying to build links with the Getting It Right first time, the GERFT team. Um, They have been working hard on on 
their model health system and on further faster um, approaches and have produced handbooks and other things that we, we ought to make our, our members aware of within BSR. And I think we can work very closely to try and incorporate all the things we, we know need to change over time uh, and provide support tools to clinicians um, is one of our, our sort of key aims in, in that interactive work. Um, we've also started work targeting politicians, trying to get their support in terms of understanding, again, what what we can do within rheumatology, understanding the implications of not funding staffing and workforce um, uh, and the economic impact of uh, not adequately treating and treating early as we're looking to achieve through this audit. So there's the, the People We Need campaign um, that uh, um, document that BSR produced this year. Um, there's been parliamentary um, drop-in sessions that are helping to raise the profile again of rheumatology. We've had parliamentary questions raised linked with the audit. So I, I think these are sort of all collaborations we need to ha- work on progressively and have been working on already to date. So um, I, I think they're probably the key areas. I'm sure there are other areas I should have thought of, but um, <laughs> they're the key areas that I think we're sort of focusing on on, on the, uh, the moment. And I think collaborative work in particular with NHS impact, um, impact representing improving patient care together um, through NHS England, I think is going to be really important. Um, collaborative working with the demand and capacity programme, outpatient and recovery transformation programmes. And as I've, I think, already mentioned, the model hospital system and further faster sort of support that's available to, to clinicians. Fantastic, thank you. And just keeping on that collaborative um, theme there, the report highlights the need for multidisciplinary care in the management of early inflammatory arthritis. Liz, can you elaborate on the role of various healthcare professionals in providing comprehensive care to patients? Yeah, so rheumatology has always been at the forefront of multidisciplinary uh, working and has long adopted the MDT principle. And in fact, even BSR itself is a multidisciplinary organisation. We've got members from all walks of the clinical life um, participating um, and actively engaged. Um, And certainly what we do know, and the auditors demonstrated very clearly, um, is that if you've got good multidisciplinary support, support, particularly specialist nurse support, then you're able to start patients on DMODs very early in their disease process. You can support them to stay on DMODs. You can run um, patient helplines, which encourage patients to, 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 to comply with medication, make sure they have some troubleshooting if things go wrong. Fantastic. Joe, the report emphasises the importance of patient involvement in decision making. What are the main benefits of this approach? So I think this is a really important question and something we're increasingly recognising is just how important the patient's um, involvement is. I look at this in several levels. If you look at it at a one-to-one level, a clinician working with a patient coming through their, their clinics and their rheumatology services, this is really how we make sure that the patient is treated as an individual. We have care pathways, we have guidance um, which is more widely available, um, but individualising that that care pathway for each patient is so important. Taking into account beliefs, values, empowering the patients to to get involved in their own self management, 
And all of this has been shown to be of proven impact on outcomes, quality of life, compliance with treatment, um, but also patient satisfaction. So I think these are all things we're increasingly aware of uh, uh, and should help us in terms of sort of working with patients on a a one-to-one level. Um, If you look more generally, this is a fundamental principle of the NHS. Um, We need to value patients' rights and involve them in decision-making GMC require us as doctors to to do this um, as part of the professional capabilities framework. Um, By working in this way, we can identify and flag inequalities and maybe work at ways of improving any inequalities. And it supports the delivery of more appropriate and cost-effective services uh, overall, I think it helps inform all of us, but in particular commissioners and researchers maybe on what's really important to patients. And that may help take us in a slightly different direction of travel maybe than we've historically gone. So I think these are all all factors that we, you know, really emphasise the importance of patient involvement. And then I think linked with Nia, my personal experience is just how valuable the patient voice has been and probably the parliamentary drop-in session that I, I mentioned earlier was one key example where the patient voice was clearly impactful when speaking to MPs. So um, getting our patients involved, the work that our patient um, group have done with NIA, I think has been invaluable and so I've certainly learned a huge amount from them. Um, and really rewarding to, to for BSR and this project to have received awards for that that work. So I think we're getting some things right. I'm sure there's more that we can be doing. Um, what is clearly needed, however, to, to sort of in, keep patients involved is time. And clinicians always often feel stretched on time. So that's something we need to sort of factor in. And there may be tools that can help support the process that we need to explore within BSR. Fantastic. Liz, what can patients, their families and the general public do to support the implementation of the five NIA recommendations? Well, to start at the beginning and explain something that I think is quite interesting is that I hope everyone listening is aware of the fact that NIA has expanded to include not just early arthritis, it's expanded to include include the connective tissue disease and the vasculitides. And a lot of the impetus to do that came from the patient charities standing up and saying we are not being paid enough attention to we want our voices heard and actually we've responded as BSR and H could obviously allowed us to do this by expanding the data collection so that's really valuable so I think it is really important that the patients have their chance to have their say and that means that everybody should be giving their patients the chance to do that by entering all the newly diagnosed patients into the audit and ensuring that by putting their email address in patients themselves can contribute so that's the first and simplest thing I can say the other thing to say is that one of the targets is that patients are referred promptly to specialist care and you need to have patient advocates pushing for that in general practice and in the community Um, also for looking um, to have their rheumatology departments well enough supported in order to enable them to see those patients within three weeks and that means allowing resources to channel themselves into rheumatology departments and again the patient voice is really important in determining the, the channels that funding goes down so they're much more likely to listen to patients interestingly than they are to people like me so I think the public can pay a huge part in encouraging us as rheumatologists to participate in the audit and encouraging funding into rheumatology in general. 
It's really good to hear. Thank you for that. What has changed in rheumatology over the years? So rheumatology is a different speciality than it was 20 years ago. There is no doubt about that. When I started training back in the 90s, um, there were still people being put on gold. I mean, you know, you'd think someone was crazy now if they prescribed gold. You know, you really would. Some people listening to this podcast won't even have heard of gold and penicillin being used in rheumatology. <laughs> That's showing my age. So if you look at the history, back in the sort of, um, I think probably methotrexate started being used late 70s, early 80s. Um, things like gold and penicillin were phased out around about then. But um, in the late 90s, early 2000s was the huge development of the anti-TNF agents, which were the first successful biologic agents to be used in um, rheumatology, closely followed by the expansion into rituximab and, and, and some of the newer agents we use today. And I think it's really hard, unless you, you were there, to, 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 to evaluate the difference that's made. So, you know, we went from, I can remember I had a colleague, now retired, whose um, paper when she was a registrar was time to first joint replacement. Now, we, and we used to do combined clinics with orthopaedic surgeons when I started doing rheumatology in the sort of early 2000s. That's gone. We don't do that now. Patients having joint replacements, we still have some patients having joint replacements, either because they're treatment failures or because they've just got old and, and they've got osteoarthritis. And nowadays, our idea is that we treat people aggressively early on, we minimise their disease activity, we prevent disability, we prevent deformity, and people should be living normal lives with arthritis. That's our aim, is to get people functioning normally, economically active, doing all their hobbies. And in fact, and again, this, this all seems so obvious now and you forget but, you know, if you go back, to, sometimes you, you get an old set of notes and you flick back to the letters and people used to be admitted for bed rest. And that is absolutely the worst thing you can do with a patient with arthritis. There was some seminal research um, that came out of North Wales, actually, um, around about 20 years ago, which showed that the average rheumatology patient lost 30% of their muscle mass within the first three months of diagnosis. And that was all disuse. And what we now do is we say to these patients, you've got to keep active, you've got to keep moving, you've got to treat them effectively to allow them to do that. And actually, you can prevent that muscle loss, you can prevent the sarcopenias, you can prevent long term damage. So I think rheumatology is a different world from the one that you might have seen if you were walking around the medical wards 20, 30, 40 years ago. And in fact, the other thing that's changed is we no longer have inpatient beds. When I was a, a junior doctor, rheumatology had inpatient beds, we don't. And as a houseman, for me, so that was in mid mid eighties. I did rheumatology, and I said that's not the specialty for me because all I did as a junior doctor was plonk them in a bed and ask the physios and OTs to do something with them because we had nothing. Yeah, everything's done as an outpatient. We're a very efficient, cost-effective specialty that raises money for trusts, and that's the message we want to get across. Absolutely, and I think that you know the key take-home message and the key thing that I've seen change over the years is that we have recognised this, what we call, window of opportunity. So if we can get treatment, effective treatment, to patients in a timely manner, we can help prevent all the sort of knock-on effects, so the loss of muscle mass, loss of work, um, or all the sort of things that are of real importance to, to patients. So this window of opportunity concept has become really key to our management and, and is driving what, what's happening with this audit. It's why we're so interested in time to being seen, time to being treated, because we know that influences outcomes in, in, in the end. Uh, and this is 
and we and we have treatments that will work, which um, is is something that has really hugely expanded um, our, and our understanding of how they work and why they work and in what order we we use things uh, has really helped inform um, and made the specialty hugely exciting, in my opinion. What do you think should be prioritised for future research? And either of you can answer this. You probably both have different <laughs> different opinions. Um, I think I think one challenge I think is getting everybody on board with this. This is everybody's job, yeah. So I'm a huge advocate for people taking ownership of their data, looking at their data, and making sure that they're all contributing, um, because all of us need to be measured. None of us are above quality measurement. We all need to know how well we're doing and to benchmark ourselves against others. And what I hope is that over time, um, we all get better together. We don't want to leave anyone behind. So that's my aim for this, for this audit. And I think my, my key message to people who are more research-minded maybe than I, I have been throughout my career, although I have done some research in, in the past, is, is this data is real-life data, particularly if, if everyone contributes. It becomes more and more valuable um, the more people contribute and the more data we, we capture. And then this is available to researchers who have specific queries for um, what's happening in real world uh, through data access request processes and really want people to be aware that they, they can anyone can put in a request to access specific parts of the data, maybe the whole data, to answer specific queries. It goes through a process, um, but there, there are these processes available to individuals should, should they want to do this. And I'm really keen that these data are used for research as well as benchmarking and for quality improvement. I think there's, it, there is going to be a wealth of information um, within this data set progressively over time and the more we can have people engage with it the more valuable it is going to be that's right i think the the annual report tells a whole picture but only through doing the research you can drill down more into the data and get more out of more out of it and there's great qi initiatives that people are doing with their data if people understand how they can access their data and how they can use it i mean qi doesn't need to be a big Big thing, like it should be an ongoing thing that they can use their it data for. It should be for. part of everyone's job every day, shouldn't yeah. it? Yeah, that's that. That be our aim. Yeah, it's a continuous improvement process. Yeah. Okay, that's great. Thank you both. Amazing. Thank you for listening to Talking Rheumatology Spotlight, brought to you by BSR. Please do rate, share, and subscribe through your favourite podcast app.